celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast, it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some, on, some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will, not let the, he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and for your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Let's pray again. Father, we come before you as needy people in need of your word and your instruction and your guidance. And we praise you for being so faithful to do that very thing through the preaching of your word. So give Pastor Stephen grace and give him focus and clarity as he opens up the word for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Morning, church. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, I was on a uh, mission trip with my youth group in uh, Wyoming, and we were at uh, some state park or national park uh, one evening. We were cooking out and playing, and I think some people playing catch, some people were throwing a football around. There was a little river that flowed through, and some people were wading in the water, maybe up to their knees or so, and uh, my friend Aaron and I, who for much of our youth group years were always... uh, pushing the boundaries and, and getting in a little trouble, we, uh, we decided to go a little further down that river. And we went towards, we weren't the uh, brightest crayons in the box, we went towards a waterfall, uh, not the bottom of it, but the top of it. And it was about a 40 or 50 foot waterfall. So we're playing uh, in the water and playing on these rocks that are going out into the river. And um, Aaron uh, starts to slide down one of the rocks. You know, rivers flowing over rocks and everything. They smooth out, they're wet, they get really, really slippery. And Aaron starts to slide down on the rocks and starts to panic. And now this is where the story has two versions to it. Um, my version, my version, that, that wasn't supposed to be funny. Uh, my version was, is that I, I walked over to Aaron and, and I saw him in his need and I just kind of reached down and gave him a hand and helped him up. 
Aaron's version is a little more dramatic. Aaron's version is that, uh, I got got to kind of get in character for Aaron for this to work. He has kind of a big, gregarious personality. Aaron would say that he was like sliding down this rock, and, and, and his life is flashing before his eyes. And uh, he, he, he's thinking all of this, he's looking up into the sky, the sun is shining brightly in the sky, and, and he sees this dark silhouette just kind of appear in, in the light, looking down on him, and it reaches down and just grabs him and lifts him out of the water. I don't have a problem with that version. Um, <laughs> But I also don't think it's the most accurate version of the story. But I will say this, when, uh, when you save one of your best friend's lives, uh, when you're 12 or 13, that's a nice little card to be able to play for the rest, of, uh, for the rest of, of life and of our friendship together. I always play that with him jokingly. And I think it's good uh, for Aaron to remember this event, but that's just joking. But in complete seriousness, the people of Israel's very survival and flourishing after they left Egypt and marched through the wilderness to the promised land was directly connected to them not forgetting or ever moving beyond the work of God that they had experienced in coming out of Egypt. And dear church, our life as a church, our vibrancy, our joy, our hope, the Lord's work within us is totally reliant upon us never forgetting or never moving beyond the grace of God that we have received as he has redeemed us and brought us to himself through Christ. Where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12, If you're visiting with us, we're in the midst of a series actually walking through the book of Exodus. We uh, pattern our preaching where we uh, just go through books of the Bible week by week. We think that the wisdom of God is revealed in that. And it's good for us as the people of God to be taught and to be ministered to in that way. But where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12 is that God is preparing the people of Israel to leave Egypt. They've walked through the plagues or they've observed the plagues poured out upon the Egyptians, and and now we're seeing him give instruction to them in order that they might remember his work on their behalf. And in doing this remembering, he gives us instructions so that they might more particularly keep this redeeming work that he had done in their midst, not just kind of on their radar, but actually at the forefront of their minds as as the thing that they think about that unites them as the people of God as the thing that they think about that gives them hope as they march through the wilderness. And so we're going to see how he gives them these these instructions that they can keep these right on their minds, right on their hearts. And then secondly, we're going to see that the Lord reminds them of his saving work in their midst, his powerful redeeming work to them in order that they might teach future generations as they leave Egypt en route to the promised land. And so we see two sections in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14 to 28. We see first the instruction from God on how the people of Israel are to observe this this feast of unleavened bread. And then we have the action of the people uh, in sacrificing a lamb without blemish for the Passover uh, that that actually the feast of unleavened bread is, is a part of the greater Passover celebration. And so it's good to think of these events, these, these feasts, these celebrations in this way. 
Passover is an event that the Israelites commemorated, that they remembered, where God literally passed over them and, and placed the judgment upon themselves on another. This Passover lamb that they were instructed to take and sacrifice for their sins. And so this is this act of God literally saving and redeeming them, them through the blood of another. This is new life-giving work. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is this part of the uh, Passover celebration, but it's where they would remember and, and, and recommit themselves to live in holiness and to live in fidelity to God as the people of God who had been given new life through His work and passing over them, their sin and drawing them to Himself. And so he wants them. He gives them these things that they might keep his grace to them as work on their behalf right at the forefront of their minds and right at the forefront of their community. And so if you look at verse 14, it says, This is a day that you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Our translation here says it's something they commemorate. Some Bible translations say that it's a memorial. But the question we then ask ourselves is, okay, what does it commemorate? What does it memorialize? And then verse 17 tells us, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. So it's this instruction for this feast, this celebration, but it's, it's, it's fueled by this finished work of God in bringing them out of Egypt. And so this is actually kind of upside down in how culture thinks about religion, is it not? Walk with me on this. And think about like even the songs we've, we've uh, sung this morning, okay? We sing of this Passover lamb. We sing of this lamb who, who, was di- who died and shed his blood for our sins. And we sing of the, of, the, of, the, of the forgiveness and the redemption that we have in him. But then our hope as Christians is in that work, in that work that's already accomplished. But if you think about culture, you think about kind of the, the norm or the default position of our world, it's to think, okay, I've got to do these rituals, I've got to do this work, or maybe I do these moral acts or these good deeds, or, or I do whatever I need to do to climb that ladder to make myself right with God. But the work of the grace of God to his people and the joy of this message that we proclaim to the world is that we don't make ourselves right with God in our holy living, but that God has made us right with him through the blood of the Passover lamb and we live in obedience to and enjoy in him as a response to this. And this is something the Israelites had to remember. And this is why these two things are tied so closely together. And we have to remember these as well. We have to remember these as the Lord begins the work of purifying us as we journey to him from our spiritual, our metaphorical Egypt to his presence in our eternal promised land. So if we were to walk through this passage about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we see six times in these verses that God tells the people of Israel to eat nothing made with yeast or with leaven. This is unleavened bread. And this was kind of more like without the yeast, it didn't rise, so it was more of like a cracker than a cake. And, and, and so look at, these, look at these times. We're going to kind of go through this section here. Verse 15, for seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. And whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. If you jump on to verse 18, it says, In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast. 
from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreign or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Throughout the Bible, leaven or, or yeast, getting into bread, is symbolic of corruption or contamination of the people of God. It's, it's, it's symbolic of sin entering the midst of the, of the people that profess that they have been redeemed from their sin and they have turned from their sin and, 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 and placed faith in God. And, and so our Lord is concerned with the purity of His covenant people just like a groom is concerned with the purity of his bride and vice versa. And so it gives them this feast to remind them of their responsibility to grow in holiness in light of this new life, this redeeming grace they have. And, and so it gives them this that they may be spurred on in holiness. And, and when we start talking about things like God purifying his people or God growing his people in holiness, uh, it can sometimes be a little intimidating. Rarely do you hear the prayer request, hey, can you pray for me? I need to become more holy. Sometimes we can mistake talk of holiness with stodginess. Think of somebody as holy and you think is that person capable of laughing. Can they smile? Maybe they're a person, or, or you think of somebody pursuing, growing in holiness, and you think of like this rigid intensity that, that makes everything or being around them awkward. And to be honest, it's really quite sad that within the church, within Christianity, holiness, holiness of all things, can be viewed suspiciously or maybe even with, with a raised eyebrow. Maybe some of you, when you think of, when I say, okay, what do you think of when you think of holiness? You think of like asceticism. You think of a monk or, 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 or uh, uh, some kind of person that, that maybe just wraps themselves in, in very simple robes and, and all they eat each day is a cracker and a small glass of water and then they get up and they go memorize the book of Isaiah in Hebrew or something like that. And, and, and you say, all right, I, I, that's not my kind of holiness. It's not what I'm after. But at the same time, I don't think that's the holiness that the Scriptures are after. I don't think that's the holiness that the Lord would produce in us. You see, church, the, the, the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life is not the pursuit of dour, joyless uh, religiosity. True growth and holiness is actually a joyful endeavor whereby the Christian runs to Christ and because this is because Christ has already made him or her new in himself. And so holy, pursuit of holiness, pursuit of this growing in sanctification, that's the big Christian word for growing in Christ, maturing as a follower of Christ. All it is, 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 is it's our responsibility to grow because of the, the, the applying the redeeming work of Christ to our lives. And so a pursuit of growing in holiness is a pursuit of reminding ourselves of the grace of God that we have received. And then that just shaping and that influencing and that flowing through the course of our lives. Just as we sing these words and they penetrate deep in our hearts and then we want them to flow out of our lives as we go. That's holiness. That's growing in holiness. Christ conforming us more and more to Himself. 
This is why Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are tied together. If one calls for holy living, the other says, look at the grace of God that can lead you to this holy living. And you know, in fact, this is why there's so many references throughout both the Old Testament as well as also the New Testament to you know, how we conduct ourselves as a people. How, how individual Christians go about marriage, how they go about work, how they grow about life, how they grow about uh, singleness, how they grow about raising children, how they grow about being a child, being raised. All of these things, you see them throughout the, particularly throughout the New Testament, written to the church because Paul and others that are ministering to the church want the church to know how to grow in Christ. How to apply these rich truths of the gospel to their lives. And maybe where some of us are tempted to say, oh, I see this standard or I see this call for holiness and say, I I don't measure up. I don't measure up. That's the first step towards holiness. That's the first step towards growing in the grace of God. In fact, it's, it's seeing more and more and more that, yes, I don't measure up, but Christ does and I take hold of him. And what we see in these instructions for the feasts of unleavened bread is this reality. There's a danger that some people who were associated with the Israelites had geographically left Egypt. but They had not spiritually left Egypt. They had not spiritually left her false gods and the worship of idols and gods that are not the one true God. It appears that the redeeming grace of God had perhaps not taken hold of every member of the people of Israel. And in verse 19, we see that if this is the case, they need to be cut off from the community of Israel. Verse 19, whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Paul, so as to not think this is just some Old Testament thing where God was in a bad mood in the Old Testament, Paul actually used the same language in urging the church in Corinth to guard the church's purity. When in 1 Corinthians 5, he warned them that a little yeast leavens the whole batch. And then he urged the church at Corinth to cut off the person who was this yeast because they are a threat to the whole community of faith. So what does it mean to cut off that person? It simply means this clear stated separation from the person so it's understood that they are not a member of the covenant people of God. In the New Testament, this is visible in, in, in officially removing someone from church membership because they profess to being a follower of Jesus, but they also refuse to repent for continued sin that they will not give up or relinquish. Let's be honest. Do you read things like this, language of cutting people off from the community of God and say, what are you doing here, God? Why would you do this? You would literally call for the separation of your people from someone in the church body who is living in unrepentant sin. I don't think this is as crazy as foreign of a concept as it might sound to us. Let's do a little thought experiment here, okay? We'll do two of them. First of all, imagine you're at the doctor's office. You're getting your yearly physical, your yearly checkup. Doctor uh, comes in with reports or whatever, and they say, all right, blood pressure looks good. Cholesterol looks good. Weight looks good. You know, everything looks good except for that little tumor in your abdomen. I'll see you in a year. You, you, would, you would say, wait, uh, doc, hold on a second. Um, can we discuss that tumor? You would, why would you do that? You would do that because you know, you know for a fact 
that that one little tumor or one little clump of cancerous cells can cause a whole lot of damage. Teenagers. How many of you, when you want to go hang out with friends or go somewhere with your friends, you, uh, your parents are maybe like my parents, and you, you ask them, hey, I want to go, can I go out with my friends? And they, they ask you kind of two questions. Where are you going, and who are you going with, right? And you tell them, and, and maybe you're going with four or five friends, and three out of four of them are pretty good, but you know there's that one bad apple in the bunch, and mom and dad know that kid, and they don't really like that kid. And so mom and dad are skeptical, and maybe they don't let you go, and things like that. And, and why is that? It's because parents of teenagers know that a little yeast ruins the whole batch. They know this. Dear church, I point this out and I say this humbly and compassionately. And here's why we say, see this laid out to the Israelites in Exodus 12 and to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. A church who loses her pursuit of growing in Christ is a church that has lost sight of her Savior. More dangerous than any cancerous tumor or any bad apple amongst teenagers is a church losing sight of the Savior and the gospel that she professes to believe. Now, this isn't everybody walking around, their t- walking around on their toes, anxious or nervous, but it actually means that we have this responsibility as a church, as believers knitted together, covenanted together, and we have this responsibility to delight in Christ together. We grow not through this inner resolve for this, uh, this picture of holiness in our mind, this, this picture to do better and to behave in a certain manner, but in fact we grow as followers of Christ by focusing upon Him and upon His accomplished work and seeing it unpl- unfolded and unplayed throughout the Bible and praying that God would help us to apply the work of Christ to our lives, to our church, to our world, to our jobs, to, our, to everything around us. And we grow together and we do this in practical ways like one-on-one Bible reading together, prayer together. We grow in Christ together in growth groups and, and, and we grow in Christ together in worship together, singing of the glorious grace of God together and hearing the Word, receiving the Word as it's preached with, with rapt attention, knowing that these words are words of life coming from the Bible that are conforming me more and more and more and more to Christ and His finished work. And this is changing me day by day by day. And we do this, dear church, we do this with a serious joy. We do it with a serious joy, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we keep this focus in front of us of our Passover lamb who has defeated sin and death, also knowing that we don't just need the cross of Christ for yesterday, but we need it for today. We need it for tomorrow. We need Christ every millisecond of every day. And God, as he grows us, gives us the grace that we might come to him through Christ, that we might drink daily from Christ. And even when the heart is tired, when the lips are parched, He brings us to living waters of Christ that give us life and spur us on together. That is the pursuit of holiness in the community of faith. Keeping these things centered in the mind and the habits and the life of the people was one thing, but they also had to teach of the redeeming work of God to future generations. One way you keep things at the forefront of the community is to Teach it to children. And to keep, teach it to those who are coming in from outside, coming into the community, whether young or old. Look at verse 14. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. If you were to skip on to verse 24, 
You see this emphasis on teaching the next generation. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And then verse 26, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. If you think about it, the people of Israel right at this time of the plagues and exodus experienced something that changed not only them at that time, but would have dramatic influence and impact upon Israelites for generations, 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 centuries, centuries, centuries later. But all of those descendants that would come generations and centuries later, they were not involved in these actual events. They had to hear it. They had to learn of it. It had to take root in them. Let me illustrate it like this. We have a little crowd participation here, okay? I want you to raise your hand if you are gathered here, if you're, if you're here today, and you are also a witness to the events of the Revolutionary War in 1775 to 1783. Nobody. I expected a couple, but... Um. Now, okay, okay, okay. Now, if I also asked, how many of you enjoy today the benefits of what the Revolutionary War accomplished. Every single hand almost would go in the air. And that is because these events uh, uh, happened, and, but the benefits of them were passed on to generation and generation and generation. So with all due respect to our American heritage, and I have a lot of it, Fourth of July, I'm the loudest one singing Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American. But the... With all due respect to this heritage that we have as Americans, the instruction and the life for the people of Israel and, and this message of the Passover lambs and the message of how we are redeemed and how we are the people of God, we had to be taught to generation after generation after generation, not lest they forget some of the freedoms they have, but lest they be cut off from the very God that delivered them. You see, the Israelites could tell their children for generation upon generation as they celebrated the Passover yearly and as they went through life in that wilderness journey, they could say on that night, we went and we put blood on the doorposts of the home. And we stayed inside until morning. And then the Lord went through and He brought judgment upon our Egyptian oppressors. But oh, He did not bring judgment upon us, but He brought salvation to us and we live. Oh, we live by the life-giving, gracious hand of God. And dear child, this is why we are journeying to the promised land. And this is the Lord that we worship. Parents, do you teach your children the gospel? Do you share with them and pray with them about the hope of Christ? And do you tenderly model to them that they can take their little four and five and six year old needs before Christ who hears them? Do you teach them about communion and and baptism as they see these ordinances observed at the church? Do you take advantage of an opportunity like last week with Anthony and Katie's baptisms to share? That is our hope. 
That act was nothing. It didn't accomplish anything, but it was a symbol of a hope that we have of a supernatural reality that they have been brought from death to life. And in a powerful, supernatural, very real sense, they died with Christ on the cross and they rose with Him from the tomb. And that is our hope, dear child. Do you take the opportunity to share that? You know, one good thing about the church One good thing about the church is that she does enough weird things that it gives us teaching opportunities for the kids. (laughs) Next week, communion. I think I was like 25 before I knew what communion was. It's, It's Next week, when you take communion, will you take the opportunity to teach your kids that this isn't something that we we just do because people started doing it long ago, but we don't know why. No, will you take the opportunity to teach them that it's an act whereby we literally remember our Passover lamb, Christ. We remember this one who who his body was broken for our sin. And we say with the people of Israel, here is the one. Here is the lamb of God. Look at that blood shed for you and for me. For the Lord sees the blood to which we cling, and by it we are washed white as snow, and by it we have life. So just like we eat and drink to live. We eat and drink this to be reminded that we have life everlasting in Christ. Teach that to those who don't know. Pass it on. Brothers and sisters maybe who, who have been believers, followers of Christ for decades and decades and decades. Do you observe these events in the life of the church, whether it be baptism or communion or the weekly worship, and are you still moved by them? Are you still influenced and impacted by them, do they provoke you to a joy that is not unlike the joy you experienced when you first found new life in Christ? May I urge you to worship and and participate with a perspective that though I have been a believer for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, that, that, that this gospel message of the death and resurrection of Christ, it's as if He died and rose yesterday and He's sustaining me second by second today and He's coming back for His church tomorrow. Do you have that joy and that hope and do you pass it on and does it flow through you? Church body, do you take advantage of the opportunities to worship together to be ministered to in your soul as we sing these doctrinally rich lyrics about Christ and our life in Him? Do you bring your 60, 70, 80 hour work week and your tiredness and your anxiety, your broken weariness into perspective where you can cry out? You can cry out even through tears and deep heartache that Christ is my life. Christ is my reward. Though my life be wasting away, Christ is sufficient. And my life is rooted and anchored in Him. Do you allow these things that the church practices to minister to your soul in order that you can teach others of these great truths? You see, these two events, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, were woven together by God in His wisdom. They were given to the people of Israel that they may never move beyond their awareness of their great need for Him, but also that they may never move beyond their awareness of His great provision for them. Dear church, we receive the Word together. We pray together. 
we laugh, we cry together, we encourage one another with the Gospel. We look back upon the cross and the resurrection of Christ continually because we need to teach ourselves and keep this at the forefront of our minds. Because we too are pilgrims traveling from our spiritual Egypt to the promised presence of our Lord. We too desperately need the grace of God in the days and weeks and years ahead because we know that none of us knows what might be around the next corner. We can cling to Christ and we sing of this so that we don't forget and we cling to Him in His goodness even as we lay our heads down on the pillows of our tears perplexed and anxious over the perils of life. We cling to Christ like a life jacket as we're clinging to it and we're, we're rocking in the water of storms passing over us. We cling to Christ because we have nothing else to cling to because the gods of our Egypts have proven us to be false and have proven to be empty. And we cling to Christ, the Passover Lamb, who has come for us and we practice these events that we may never forget our Lord who brought us out of Egypt. Whenever I'm back in Arkansas and visiting with Aaron and other friends, and he goes into that story about me saving his life, I get a chuckle as he over-exaggerates. Church, it is impossible for us to over-exaggerate the power and the beauty of this gospel of Jesus Christ through which we have been born again to new life in Him. May we, as a body, be conscious to keep His redeeming work at the forefront of our mind and be conscious and be serious about teaching this good news to those who come into the fam- church family and to the future generations. Let's pray together. Lord, Your provision for Your people did not stop when they left Egypt. Your provision for Your people was in giving, giving them these events that they may continue to keep them at, at the forefront of their minds and teach them for generations and generations and generations. Lord, help us to see the worship of the body and the fellowship of the saints that we experience and that engage us in keeping Christ at the center of our minds and at the heart of our passions and our teaching to future generations. Help us to keep these things central by focusing not on our inner resolve, but focusing upon the finished work of Christ and the life we have in Him. We pray this in His name, the One who has defeated our sin and our death. Amen.